This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed the Deep Dive. Respect as we are at Friday morning at nine o'clock. And today's guest is somebody who is a little bit out of our normal circle of conversations. We tend to dwell a little bit on politics and uh, social action and the occasional author of a slightly more academic kind of work. But today we're really pleased to have a chance to talk to Ryle Levitt, a businessman extraordinaire, uh, a name that probably doesn't need to be explained to most uh, listeners. If you're over the age of 10, you probably lived a portion of his life with him as various of his activities became news headlines, page one above the fold in a variety of newspapers for quite some time for a variety of things. And you may well have seen signs of his various business enterprises parked along the streets, and you may even have been a participant in some of it. You may have even sold a house or two through one of his enterprises, and or you may be using the services of his newest business effort. But his his new book, um, It Takes a Tsunami, I'm looking at it as I'm holding it, and it reads a bit like a novel, or a movie script, or the prep for a movie script, um, on the rise and fall, the rise and rise, and then the fall of a um, of one of South Africa's more interesting entrepreneurial business figures. And it even, extraordinary, I haven't talked to anybody who'd actually been through this before, there's even some testimony in here of his real-life experiences in Thailand, in Phuket, Thailand, and 2004, during the Boxing Day tsunami, the one that crushed against or crashed against all the countries surrounding the Indian Ocean. Now, I'd actually been in North Sumatra, the place where the the earthquake had uh, had taken, the undersea earthquake had taken place, and so I know something about what it looks like there. I've seen television of it, but our guest actually had to scramble over tables and chairs and run away from giant waves and climb up to the upstairs of a, of a hotel to get out of those waves. And so that's quite extraordinary. And he obviously survived because we're talking to him this morning from this. And just to get to the key points, very key points of his business uh, history, uh, over the years, he built Auction Alliance uh, into one of the main auction houses in South Africa, I think primarily dealing with residential property at the time, upscale property in, in most cases. And he lived through the collapse of that enterprise as a result of a, a an auction of the wine estate, Kion Rock, back, oh, some years ago, um, the, uh, the Dave King estate. And the unpleasantness out of all that and the media storm that evolved from it collapsed the business and then sent him abroad to study in in the U.S. and then in Singapore, which is an interesting choice, and we'll get to that in a minute. He came back to South Africa, returned to the business world, and now he runs or has created a commercial property leasing firm that builds office parks and other kinds of facilities like that, a little different than before. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, on the air this morning. Thank you for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Brooks. And um, the uh, I, I suppose the, the name of the book talks about it. It takes a tsunami, and and for me, the tsunami was was the two that you referenced. Um, first, it was the the actual tsunami that the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004, which you quite correctly said emanated in uh, Sumatra, India. I happened to be in and survived uh, that tsunami with, um, with the loss of, of two of my friends who were there. And then, of course, the, the second tsunami, which was probably more of a media tsunami, which um, uh, killed, in essence, this, this uh, business which I'd started as a, as, a, as a university student at the age of 20. And it really, I, I suppose the ultimate message of the book is that um, it takes a tsunami to discover what we're made of, and it takes a tsunami to discover that we are, uh, we can survive these difficult circumstances and rise up and fight another day. So, yes, it really is the story of dealing with adversity. I mean, I, I read your business career looking something like a like a, like the the sharp edge of a ratchet saw or a ratchet blade. There's a rise and a peak, and then there's a, a sharp decline, and there's a rise and a peak. Now we're apparently on the uh, the rise and the peak phase of these things. Uh, and, and South Africa, being what it is, always have to, I guess, pay attention to what's coming over the horizon next. I, I realize that's all mixed metaphors, but I think you know what I meant. The sort of sub-themes in the book, and I don't know whether it was intentional, but I think it reflects a reality out there, is that the South African business world is effectively divided into a series of clans or tribes. There are quotation marks around the word clan and tribe, because I don't mean to imply, you know, in in the very specific kind of tribal sense, but there's a Jewish business world, there's an Afrikaner business world, there's an English business world, and now more recently there is a black, African, and Indian business world. Do they operate with different rules and behavior and, and sort of uh, implied mores? Uh, it seems to be the case in what I read in what you wrote that they're different worlds to some extent. They bump into each other, they overlap, but they're different. Yes, I mean, I mean, certainly that they are different and um, it was intentional. In fact, I, I, there are a couple of themes running through the book. But one of the themes which I, I talk about is we, we all live in a, in a contextual environment. And so nothing happens without looking at the bigger picture. And, you know, it just so happened that when I started in business, as I mentioned previously, it was really at the very end of the apartheid era. And I took the wave. And, of course, obviously, waves is another theme which runs through the book um, euphemistically. But... I took the wave of, of the sort of post-apartheid era. And, you know, when I started, it was, I started out in, in Cape Town's northern suburbs. It was very much an Afrikaans-dominated business culture to which you refer. And it was dealing with that as, 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 an, as you know, as a nice Jewish boy from originally growing up in, in a small town and, and moving to Seapoint. And, and how I, I sort of used that, um, I worked those two worlds. And, of course, then the rise of the, New South Africa, which takes a very long time, actually. You know, we think of these things as being quite quick, but they actually take take long time. And then, of course, the rise of sort of then black economic empowerment and and how we as South Africans have to navigate these sort of dare I use the word waters of these different streams which are running. You know, being Jewish and having quite a Jewish culture, uh, living in an environment which starts with a very sort of strong Afrikaans dominated for me certainly an Afrikaans dominated 
business environment, but you have to navigate that and then we navigate into the, into the, into the choppy waters of the new South Africa, which land up actually being quite a good period, both for the, for the Jewish community and both for business. And then, you know, getting into the more sort of difficult times and, and against the sort of global backdrop of economic rise and fall. And yes, it is a theme which I bring in that, of course, you know, if you want to use that water and waves and tides as a theme, it is the rising and that, that rise and fall, you know, you use the, the, the metaphor of a, of a saw, but I, I, I actually like it as waves. I and mean, if you can see a big waves and you have smooth, calm seas and, 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 so there is that sort of metaphor running through the book. Our life is not never linear. Well, you have a more intimate acquaintanceship with very large waves rising and falling than most people do. <laughs> I think I do. I think I do. I'm not the bravest person in the world on the water, and I and I have I like the water, but I'm, the idea of a three-story wave coming at me, determined to do something to me I would not like, uh, makes me worry. Where were you able to find and how could you find the inner resources to say, this way will not defeat me no matter what it takes? Let's talk about the physical wave. And, and you know, I was in, in Kate on the beachfront. I saw the wave um, coming towards us. And I think at that stage, and I write in the book, instinct took in. And I think we all have a, a natural instinct to survive and Often we, we amaze ourselves when those things happen because we think, you know, when we sort of rationally sit down and think about it, well, you know, I, I, you know, I couldn't survive it. But when that wave happens, you, and in, in that moment, the instinct is to survive. And in that case, I physically fled the tsunami and ran up, up a hill with the water right behind me. Um, literally, I, in fact, I was literally like a meter behind me and, and I saw my friends who were sitting at the same table with me, uh, a friend of mine, Dean Munich. Being what the wave washing over him. So I think instinct is an, it's a, is a natural thing. When it came to the, the sort of the next tsunami, which was far slower, you know, I think I, I did have that instinctual, uh, issue to, to flee and to run, which actually probably wasn't so good. But then it came down to developing that sort of like tenacity, which wasn't easy. And, you know, I, I wish I could say it was just a walk in the park and I naturally have an inclination to, to be a survivor. I think. Like any other human trait, I think we, we, we develop skills and I then had to develop the skills to survive and to have that tenacity to, to, to look at it. And then, and in fact, in the book, I write about some of the, the techniques which I use, um, right at the end of the book. In fact, I put the 18 tips, which is 18 being high, but the 18 tips to survive actually those circumstances. But for me, many of those had to be learned and they came with enormous, uh, emotional uh, issues and anxiety and, 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 and how I dealt with it. And so, you know, I, I learned those things, you know, you know, funnily enough, when COVID arrived in, in 2000, March 2020, which all of us remember, um, for me, when, when COVID arrived, I actually, I, I felt that I'd sort of built the skill set of, of, of a survival and I, and I used that skill set. Um, and when, when it came out, for me, it was a, it was a bit of a walk in the park. In fact, I actually, and, and people always get surprised that, I saw how the whole world was panicking and I said, oh, you know, I'm not going to get caught up in that and I'm going to use this as a moment to, to grow both as a person and to grow my business, which, which I really did in a successful way because I didn't get caught up in that panic. And, but the truth be told is that there are skills that you can learn in, in both environments. We'll talk about that in a minute. We're talking this morning on the deep dive with Raoul Levitt, businessman extraordinaire, survivor of 
of the great tsunami uh, and now author of a memoir called, not surprisingly, It Takes a Tsunami. And we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with the deep dive. This is the deep dive with Brooke Spector. This is indeed the deep dive and I am Brooke Spector and I'm pleased this morning to be chatting with Ryle Levitt, author, businessman, and in a particular kind of way, survivalist. And he has evolved a list of survival techniques uh, that should be should be paid attention to by other business people and entrepreneurs. If you can, just a really brief precy of this, because we don't want to discourage people from not buying the book, uh, because uh, if you tell everything there is in the book, they won't buy it. So give us a real quick idea of these survival techniques that you've learned from life and from outrunning giant waves. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, I start off and I, and I literally list them and I try to keep it quite simple, but I mean, the first one which I put there is like, calm down. I use an expletive, but I say calm down. And even if you're not calm, pretend to be calm because that, that would be something which can really work well for you. And then I go into some of some more practical advice. I say, you know, get back into your routine. Um, because and even after the, the physical tsunami in Thailand, it's like, you know, we, we when, when, when shocking things happen, we get out of our routine. I talk about sort of finding people to talk to, including, you know, including a therapist. I, I talk about, um, getting your serotonin going, going, going to gym. Um, and I go, I go into like a range of, of ideas, uh, which worked for me. And, um, and, you know, it's finding, finding that support base and being careful who you talk to and, I suppose ultimately that the more philosophical things realizing that, you know, this too shall pass and that we, we mustn't hold ourselves to accountable, um, with the issues. And, um, yes, I mean, uh, you know, that, at a high level, that's really what I do. I go to sort of practical ways and in terms of actually forgiving yourself and others, because I think sometimes we, we when, when really bad things happen, we often have tendency to blame ourselves and say, well, what did I do wrong? And what, what did somebody else possibly do wrong as well? I'm thinking about that last thing you just said, uh, the ability to move on to uh, forgiveness. And maybe this is a difficult question for you because this particular individual was a, was a crucial part of the way in which your first business empire folded in. If it were to come to it, are any of the people who were involved in that coin rock affair would you sit down and have breakfast with them now? In, in fact, very much so. And so, um, I, I think, I think actually to move on, we need to forgive. I mean, I, I said in the book, I think the first person you need to forgive is yourself. Um, because whether you make mistakes or you didn't, and in that instance, I've been quite clear about it. I'm, I made many, many mistakes myself. And to the people who were involved in, in both Quinrock and sort of, let's say the media scandal, which unfolded after that. In the beginning, I didn't. I, I, I was like many people. I, I was quite bitter and I was bitter about many things. You know, why did this happen to me? Was it, you know, again, was it my fault? Uh, why did this person do that and, and another did that? And so I got into that frame and I found that actually to be hugely detrimental, um, to sit there and wallow in that. And my mind would race and, and, um, uh, about uh, different people, and and then one day, you know, I even started keeping in my mind a list of all the people who had done me wrong, um, 
And then I suddenly realized one day, you know, this is just getting me absolutely nowhere. And so my, my first thing was actually to, at, at that stage, was to go back to people, people who I thought I had harmed, um, and conversely, who I thought had harmed me, and to make shalom. And um, I did that all over the show. You know, not everybody's the same. Not everybody wants to do, wants to do take that. Most people do, by the way. Most people are happy to clear it out and sort it out. And that really worked well for me. And, you know, I try, and I've tried most of my life not to live my life in the rear view mirror um, of moving on. And it's like, um, and I thought it was, it was very important. A lot of my friends who were around me and even family, they were surprised how forgiving I was. But in the end of the day, it was, it was just practical. It was, it was good to forgive to move on. And of course, you know, people say these platitudes. It didn't come easy. I mean, I, I literally, I, at one stage, I went, I saw a therapist to discuss this. I, I traveled around the world looking for a Buddhist to, uh, and I did yoga. And I remember going when I was, I went, I went back to Thailand and I, I did this whole sort of like exercise, Buddhist existentialism in, in terms of forgiving. And, but, but at the end of the day, it just worked for me. And, and I like that. I think that's important to be able to say, you know what? Bad things happen. We do wrong. We mess up. Other people may do that too, but really to, to forgive, but uh, to forgive. And I think in many ways, you know, we are on high time in many ways that, you know, that's the story of, of, of our people is saying, you know, we, we don't, we don't last all these thousands of years if we, uh, I mean, we remember for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, we forgive and we move on and we use actually those environments to create a better future for ourselves. I take it then, uh, you would disagree with, uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, who, who kept insisting that revenge was the best, was a dish best consumed cold. I probably do do that. Um, I, I rather say revenge is a life, uh, the greatest revenge is actually a life well lived. And I, I prefer living with that quote than the serving it on a cold dish. <laughs> We're speaking with, uh, Ryle Levitt, uh, businessman, entrepreneur, survival of, lar- of very large waves, and uh, the author of a memoir, It Takes a Tsunami. Tsunami, of course, is the Japanese word for a very large wave uh, that comes crashing down and destroys property and lives and futures. One of the things that I do like asking people about, especially people who really do understand how the world is put together and how you make things happen rather than simply study them, is here you are, you're living in South Africa, you've traveled a bit, but you're back, you're working here. This is a very uncertain time to be a business person in this country, partly because of externalities, partly because of internal issues. Are there opportunities here? Obviously, there are risks, but are there real opportunities for somebody like yourself? Well, I mean, strangely enough, I've been... Um... I mean, you know, I've been giving a few talks lately to entrepreneurs and et cetera. And, and, and it's obviously now it's, it's, it's a common question. And um, it's a question which we're all asking ourselves. And, of course, it is a very uncertain time. I mean, I certainly think the world is actually in, in a very uncertain moment. And if you, if you have a look what's going on in the world, whether it be Israel or the United States or the United Kingdom, China, wherever you may be, we, we're living in uncertainty. I think I think we've actually always lived in uncertainty. There have been nice periods of calm and tranquility. But... When, when th- dramatic things happen and, and we're living in a world where it is, things are changing at breakneck speed. And so to come back to the question asked, well, is there, is there opportunity in, in South Africa? And so I suppose like many people, I, I, uh, I, I could, 
pick up, pick it up and go somewhere else. I did when I, when I studied, I went to UCLA in California and I was very, I wrote about it in the book. I was actually quite keen to go live in, in California. I have a sister and, and a brother there, but it would have been quite easy for me. I got, I got a master's degree at UCLA and it would have been an easy stepping stone. Um, and I write, actually write in the book. I said, look, you know, I went back to South Africa, uh, because I, A, I thought I had, firstly, I thought I had unfinished business in South Africa and I didn't want to leave with, without doing unfinished business. But, but, but there is truth that at, at the end of the day, it is, you know, certainly for me, I, I am South African. It's, it's part of my identity. And when I am in, in, in a South African environment, I like it. I like South Africans. I like our sense of humor. I like how, how we all, how we live. And so, you know, to be a foreigner in another place, it, it, it does require boldness and it requires adaptability. But, but is there opportunity here? And I suppose being, being a big fish in a small pond does give one opportunity. Um, and I remember being at UCLA and I, you know, I tried to get into business there and I, I picked up and I, I tried to meet with a bank, for example. And, and they said, who are you? When, when I came back to South Africa, I phoned the bank and they knew who I was. Um, and, um, and, and that made it much easier. And I, I think certainly when, when, when the, when the, the current is running the one way and you're swimming upstream, it does present opportunity because you're alone. And, and of course it comes with risk. So sort of like to ask the fundamental question, like, you know, is there a future in South Africa? You know, certainly, certainly for me, it's like, if we've chosen to live here, let's just uh, say it right. We've chosen to live in this environment and be positive about it and say, look, I, we will, we will and I will find the opportunity. Otherwise the option is, is to leave. But as long as we're living here, let's find the opportunity. If people are living here, things are happening here. And it's amazing when you have that like, switch in your mind and you say, okay, all right, it is difficult. And the lights do go on and off and there's all the various factors. But in my little bubble, has anything changed materially? Am I living a shocking life? Um, you know, are things that bad and, and not to get too caught up in the anxiety of what could happen and what should happen. I think so, certainly for me, I, I've seen opportunity in South Africa and I still see opportunity in South Africa. And, um, and, uh, truth be told, I, I, I like living here. So here I am and we're going to find opportunity wherever it may be. And that opportunity may even be offshore, but certainly I am South African and it's a very strong part of my identity. And we have a community here and we owe it to both ourselves and those around us to be positive about that. We're speaking with uh, Ryle Levitt, uh, businessman extraordinaire. Uh, many many listeners will remember uh, Auction Alliance. Uh, they'll recognize certainly uh, his experiences uh, in newspapers and in television as a result of that business's demise, his survival in the great tsunami of 2004, the rise with new businesses, and we'll let him talk about them for a bit just when we come back from this, our next station break. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed The Deep Dive. I'm Brooke Spector, your host, and we're speaking with Raul Levitt, uh, South African entrepreneur, business leader, and most recently, I would think, the author of a memoir which dives deeply into his rise in business and personal exploration about how things went badly and how he came roaring back. Um, I want to turn for a second to your overseas experience at uh, UCLA and then a little more unexpectedly, the University of Singapore. I happen to like Singapore, and I gather you did too. But um, what I was intrigued with by this book 
was it somehow the coursework or the writing or the analysis that took place in those business courses, were they the impetus, the starting point for the self-examination? Because it, it reads like a very personalized version of how not to and then how to learn how to build a business plan for success. And that seems to mirror a little bit about what they do to you and with you in business courses at the grad, postgraduate level. The answer is yes, it did. And, um, and, and, and really to sort of give you the context, I, I had start, I had gone to university when I, like many people, when I was 17 and 18 and I had done an undergraduate and I, and I I had left university sort of six months into an LLB because my father, like any nice Jewish father, wanted me to be a lawyer. He was a lawyer. But I, I went out and I started this auction business, which I ran literally for 20 years. When, when the tsunami came, an auction alliance became a large, very large business. We were 60% of the South African market. I had to do one correct. We weren't only residential property. We were commercial property. We, and in our final year, we, we sold over 5 billion rands worth of, of assets and, and all the asset classes. So... When it collapsed, I, I went into sort of a period, and I mentioned it earlier, you know, into sort of a bad space. And and then I decided to, I said, okay, I, I actually literally, I went to a very good therapist. The therapist said to me, listen, you've always been a person of action and come up with a plan. And so I sat down and I wrote a plan and I, I thought, what what would I want to achieve by the age of 50, which was last year for me? And one of the things that I'd, I'd love to go back to study and so I, I applied to um, the University of California, Los Angeles, in, in, in California, of course, and um, and I, that moment in time, it was like a magical sort of moment appeared because I, I had never really I'd worked very hard for twenty years, and all of a sudden I went back to being a student. And one of the reasons was because I actually didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was so confused. I didn't know whether I should go left or right. Should I go live in Israel? Should I go to Australia? Should I go? Should I go to, to become a Buddhist monk? I, I had, really was very confused. I often feel sorry for, for 18 year olds who finish school because I had never gone through that. And suddenly at the age of 40, I did. And then I said, look, you know, I always wanted to go back to university. And, and it was a chance. It was sort of like I had fallen off this, like, uh, to use a, a metaphor, I'd fallen off this great building and landed on the ground, but it was my chance to actually reinvent myself. And I started actually enjoying the, the, as Steve Jobs said it, it was like it, you know, falling from grace gave me the opportunity of newness. And so I go to university and now I'm a student with a backpack on my shoulder. Um, and I sort of arrive in, in a class there. And while I'm there, I decide, okay, and we're busy, you know, we're learning all these business lessons and it, it wasn't easy. Uh, to, it was an executive MBA. I, I used to keep a journal and I, I'm a big journal person. I, I write things down. I'm quite old fashioned in that way. And I start writing down the things that I did wrong, which I, I wouldn't want to repeat. Some of them were just practical and, and, um, and, and not necessarily only linked to, uh, that sort of final Quinrock auction and, and the, and the disaster, which, which happened in that period, but all the things which I've got wrong and all the things which I wanted to do. And so I used that MBA as, as a period to do that. Um, it just so happened that while I was being the MBA, they, they mentioned to me at UCLA that they had, there was another master's degree in Singapore. And I thought, you know what? I've, I've got this moment in time and I, I've got this sort of lucky break. And I was enjoying being a student and being anonymous. I was, I was, I was pretty well known prior to being, the, the, you know, the sort of scandal and, and the ghost bidding scandal. I'd been quite well known. And all of a sudden it was actually quite lacquer being a student again in, in faraway LA. Nobody knew my name. And, and I thought, let me repeat that. And then I went to Singapore and I really loved Singapore. I'd 
spent some time there on my trips. Obviously, you'd gone there to buy Sumatra, but I, I'd gone there to Thailand, and I, and I, and I enjoyed it. Um, and I, I did use this time to build a plan, and I, and I wrote, and I, and I mentioned it in, in the book, I, I put together, because I've always been quite goal-orientated, but now I literally had lessons, and I create this, and I, and I just start by longhand writing. I, I use a, te- a technique called visualization. I said, look, I'm now 40. What, what, I, what, I, what would I like my life to be like when I'm 50? And I literally write what career I want to be in, and et cetera, et cetera. And I've used, I still use that. I've now reached that 50 marks. It was 10 years later. And it was amazing of many of the things which I visualized and the goals which I wanted to achieve which I, I managed to achieve. Furthermore, while I was in uh, California at UCLA, um, a bunch of speakers, and I was so in a predicament, what am I going to do with my life? And a bunch of speakers came in. It was from Westfield, and Westfield are the, are the world's largest shopping center owners, and they started talking about the disruption of technology in real estate. And that gave me actually the idea to start this business, which I, I started after graduating called Inner Space, because I, I started I used that moment to mold actually a new business plan. And so it was a great moment. So I do recommend highly both to you, Brooks, and to anyone listening to go through an enormous scandal and then go and study. It's, it's a good course of action. So, I, and, and I used that period and um, getting off the dance floor, whether you do it at a university or you do it in a library or you do it in your lounge, getting off the dance floor at a time in your life is just a great moment for you to reflect and say, what can I do now, and what would I like to do now? You know, first you have to have the scandal, then you have to have the period of self-reflection. Well, then you have to have the period of I can teach. I can teach lessons on how to get into a good scandal, but I don't think that should be the subject of your next question. No, I wasn't planning to, to do that. What I was going to ask you in the entire book, uh, your family figures prominently, but your forebears, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings. Do you have more family? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to phrase that as, as gently as I can. No, so, I, I, I don't. I'm, I am single. I, there is no other family. But I, I, why I write the context, I, I think being Jewish family is a really important part of our identity. So, I mean, uh, there's no children and I have a dog. Um, but uh, I, I just think it's, and, and I think it's important we come from an environment and I, Literally, I think it's the second chapter in the book. It's called The Levites from Lithuania. Because mm-hmm. as, as you know, 90% of South African Jewish people come from Lithuania and it's, it's forged an, an amazing South African Jewish culture. And for me, I, you know, like many people, I, I sort of knew we were Lithuanian, but I, I actually did some research later and I, you know, I, I got to really understand the background of when my grandparents came here and, and the historical context of being uh, Jewish in the sort of far African lands from, from Vilnius and from the various shtetls which, which most South Africans have come from. Dealing with that sort of family environment, and I'm very close to my, well, but I'm close to my mother and close to my, my three siblings, nieces and nephews, and so there is a very family identity which, which I do write about. Let me turn it yet again back to our discussion back to the, the larger picture, the country's future. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. If suddenly they came along and said, "Here, you take it, you fix it, you solve things," what would you do? What are the thing? What are the steps you would you would take to re-engineer where we are now and where we should be? And you are putting me on the spot, and um, it's not a question anyone's ever asked me before. But for me, it's actually quite similarly it's similar. A good to, thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's, it's similar to like a business which is broken, and, and what would you do? And I and I 
Um, and for me, a lot of it starts with culture and the culture and ideology. So for me, the first thing I would start doing is to create, you know, I think there's a certain ideology of, of the governing party. One of those is that they can run everything and do everything. And, and often we find they can't run a traffic light on the corner of Grayston and, and Ravonia Road. And so it's the ideology to realize that we need to turn to experts. So I'm giving you a sort of classic, um, you know, a businessman's view of, of the world's one could accuse me of having a sort of Republican economics or a British conservative economics, but I, I, I do believe that. I think the ideology is wrong. And I think once there's a realization that actually government can't fix things, that, that we should have actually got rid of South African Airways many years ago because governments could barely run, as I said, traffic lights, never mind complex airlines. Governments can, can barely run a police station and they shouldn't be running, uh, the electricity, uh, which comes into our homes and, and for me, it starts with ideology. And then again, as in fixing up a business, it comes to people. Who, who, you know, what are the experience of the people to deal with the different circumstances we have? So in other words, do we have uh, somebody who's like deeply understands tourism would be running our tourism uh, rules and regulations? And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in small government and that government's job really, and I don't want to quote Ronald Reagan, but the job, government's job is actually to get out of the way as much as possible, just to create a framework. And of course, you know, that many people would challenge me because they would say, you know, in a developing country, how does one do that? But I think literally had we done that and, and, and had we got rid of these ideological visions of, of running everything and everything's going to be like, you know, like Cuba and East Germany in the 1960s. Um, I think if we get rid of those notions and we find good people to run various things, and to make very logical decisions, you know, um, and, and ask these questions, you know, is, for example, is, is Russia so important to our, to our trade balance or actually is it America? Can, can Israel help us with a water desalination versus Cuba helping us with Cuban cigar etiquette? And so th- those are the sort of, those are the sort of things which I, I, I would do, but, um, but I don't want to run South Africa. So it's probably something I shouldn't be thinking about. I continue to marvel at the fact that the the government in power now uh, has managed, if not necessarily in everything they do, but certainly in the in, in the way they think about everything they do, uh, managed to see business and business people as some, uh, if not the enemy, something approaching that, and that yeah. if they could simply bend the business people to their whims and wills, uh, things would be better uh, when, in fact, perhaps the bending might want to go the other direction. I do, funnily enough, I mean, it sounds like I write about everything in my book, but I, I do, in, in, in the one chapter where I, I come across the consumer commissioner, uh, and the consumer commissioner came from the ideology that, uh, in fact, she said that she said, you know, auction alliances, transgressions were so bad, the business needs to be shut down. And and, and in that in, in that part of the book, I actually write about in, in that sort of post-Zuma era, it probably came literally from the current government from from get go. It was it was that business businesses were seen in a very bad light. I'm try, and, and it's quite sad actually in South Africa, and and it's certainly in my story and part of the tsunami was actually that that nobody came. In, in that, that we have this we developed this sort of tall poppy syndrome around business people that they're bad. And, and the media often feeds into that story. It's like, you know, entrepreneurs are bad, particularly if they're big white male entrepreneurs, they're even worse than bad. 
and therefore we need to put in a, mil- a myriad of laws and regulations around them because they're just going to do bad. And, and you know, and I ask the question, if you think of the great organizations that have come out of this country, they've actually come out from people who have been entrepreneurial. And, you know, you know, it, it struck me when, when writing this memoir, if you lived in America, for example, if you ran a successful corner cafe, you would write a memoir. I mean, America's filled with memoirs. People write private ones and personal ones. In South Africa, you've got the most amazing business people, and they are, they don't write memoirs. You know, um, if you think of many of the great leaders, like if you go go to an exclusive books and see how many memoirs. I'm not talking about biographies which have been written about certain people, but how many memoirs can you sit down and 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 um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, if you want to, if you want to understand a business person, um, read their book. It's like having coffee with them. You know, they use that, thing, like having coffee with Gandhi. How many South African businesses have written memoir? Very, very few. Um, and so Most the great politicians, politicians do for sure. Uh, people who, who've started businesses like Discovery or Investec or, um, or, 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 or uh, or many of the great business, especially in the, in the, in the, the recent era, um, they don't have memoirs. Um, and I think they're a bit scared of writing memoirs because of the backlash of society, which has been created by business people, that it's actually just easier to keep your head below the parapet and, and keep shum and don't say anything because the, the backlash would be too big. Why do you suppose that such people are reluctant to put their their thoughts down forthrightly? And I think you quite rightly point to the fact that they are concerned with the impact on them and their businesses' reputations or possibilities for business if people know too much about what they did or went through or how they did it. And and the fact is that business is seen in a bad light, and these things become cultural, and, and, and you know one doesn't need to go too far where there's no celebration of those people who built companies here and employed thousands of people and done hugely innovative things. I mean, it, it's one of the greatest ironies that the world's wealthiest man was grew up up the road in Pretoria, and you know our, our government never says, "Oh, haven't you noticed that we have the ability to produce." These incredible entrepreneurs. It's like, wow, maybe our greatest export is not gold and diamonds. South Africa's greatest export is the great business people, including Elon Musk, who have gone around the world and literally changed the world. It's our greatest export. We, we don't recognize it. In fact, we actually go, oh, you know, ooh, that's the devil. Um, you know, that, that's the big white capitalist who's, you know, used and abused our people and our systems. And therefore, why on earth would you write a book if you recognize locally as being that? And, and, you know, even when I, when I wrote Pat Tsunami and many other people around me and my current board of directors said, are you sure you want to write this book? I mean, what's the backlash going to be? And I said, and, and, I, and I thought about that deeply for a long time. Should I actually launch the book? Because it could impact negatively. And, and you know, why expose yourself like that? We're speaking with Raoul Levitt, author of a memoir, which is an interesting and provocative read, survivor of one of the world's great natural disasters, and the creator of not one but two businesses, perhaps more. He may have another one in his pocket. We'll be right back uh, after this message. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and we're delighted to have as our guest this morning, Raoul Levitt, businessman, memorist, survivor of a tsunami, survivor of metaphorical tsunamis, as he as he would have explained, and somebody who thinks 
positively and enthusiastically about the role of business and the opportunities in a country like South Africa, even with all of its uncertainties and potential pitfalls and difficulties. We're almost out of time, but let me turn it back over to you. What closing thoughts might you uh, want to give our audience about the, uh, the way in which a business will thrive will develop, will grow, will thrive in the coming years in, in this country? Uh, I mean, I mean, certainly for me, I think one needs to look at, at, at the trends of what people are, what, what they require and what they need and, and where things are going to. And again, no matter how difficult the circumstances are, we live in a country of, you know, well over 50 million people. And so there are, are a lot of needs. I think, I think certainly not only in South Africa, but, it, it, but everywhere you need to develop a set of principles and things that, that you believe in and character traits. And, and, and I suppose the greatest character trait, which is really the, 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 the as I said in the beginning, the theme of the book is courage. It's, it's that ability to say, you know, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to roll the punches and I know those punches are going to come and or I'm going to roll in the waves if you want to keep the, the metaphor running with water. But that we get up every morning and we hit the, we hit the, the turbulent seas and we go out there and we do the very best that we can. And, you know, when difficulties arise, what, what we do is we just put a smile on our dial, sometimes even if we have to fake it until we make it, and go out there and make it happen and find opportunities amidst the chaos, um, of which there are many. And, you know, if, and if you look at the great stories of the world, not only in South Africa, South Africa itself has got many, many great stories. Most so interesting. And one of the, one of the studies I, I did when, when I was, was doing my MBA is like, why is it that so many great businesses were created at the times of greatest distress? You'll see some, some of the world's greatest businesses start actually in economic Malays and in the depression and the recession and the global downturn and and you know why is it that that happens? Why is it even as a people, uh, Jewish people have, have faced so much adversity and are yet so successful? And so the, the bottom line is when we see adversity, we do we should not see it actually as the enemy. In fact, we should see adversity as the opportunity. And the minute you see the world in that way. The minute that you say, oh, you know, this, that's terrible. Who wants to go through difficulty? But then we remember actually that it is our most difficult moments, our greatest challenges, the more difficult the environment that actually creates a better us, a better environment and better people who actually develop the tenacity and the courageousness to go through those difficult moments, realizing that they are our greatest lessons. I've, I've sometimes made the argument that even in literally, even in a civil war, there are opportunities, and it sounds dreadful, but there are opportunities for people uh, in the midst of a crisis like that on both sides of, of the fighting. You can find people selling beer, soft drinks, matches, candles, and cigarettes because they become the coin of the realm for people in extremis. Last question before we close out today. If you had to pick one person who was most important to you, business mentor, who might that be? Well, I mean, I, I personally had a lot of business mentors in South Africa, but I'm, I'm going to use one because I, I always liked that story. Um, and of course, I never met him. Uh, I've read extensively about him, which, which was Steve Jobs. And he was a, a very complicated character. 
but hugely innovative. And, you know, I, I, I always love that story of how he's, because he fell from grace. And in fact, he, that book by Walter Isaacson came out at a very similar time to my own book from grace. And, and it was a very large, white, uh, thick book, which you can read. I think it's probably six, seven hundred pages, but, you know, I, I like the fact that despite actually being fired from Apple computers, he comes back again and reinvents that entire company and, ch- and creates so many products which we're still using, which which literally change the world. And so, for me, as as a sort of like as as a mentor, which I don't know, I, I always liked that story and that very complex personality who ultimately actually sort of discovers himself and, and discovers that that adversity actually creates empires and, and creates great things. So that, that's that somebody who. I really think of somebody. I mean, there are many others, but that one I particularly like, Steve Jobs. For what it's worth, I'm talking to you with a MacBook. <laughs> there we go. So he's, he's changed your, he's changed our lives and our daily interactions, and, and he changed so many industries, and and had a short life if you think of it. Absolutely, and uh, I, I think for many many years he never even owned a necktie. We've been speaking with Raoul Levitt, businessman, entrepreneur survivor of a of a metaphorical as well as a very real tsunami and has now recently published his memoirs it takes a tsunami it's available in bookstores i won't hold the picture up because we're on radio aren't we so you can't see it but i'm holding his book it is on audio as well and i narrate it myself so you can get it on audible and all the various audio channels and platforms that are around you are allowed to make that advertisement. There's no, there's no problem with that. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking with you. I hope we, we can talk with you again in the future about uh, business issues and where business and politics and government intersect. Thank you, Brooks. I'm much appreciated uh, to talk to the Hive MT. We've been speaking with Raul Levitt. This is the Deep Dive. I'm Brooks Spector, and we'll be back again next week.